Well, we're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. Uh, we find ourselves today in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. Would you turn to Mark 13? We will still continue um, unraveling the Word of God and when it comes to the uh, end times. And we'll read to verse 7, but we'll only focus on verses 5 and 6 for today. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And we looked at that last week and we've uh, connected the dots and we uh, helped to see clearly from the scripture that in the, the context of this speaks of the end times. And Jesus now says, it says, yeah, Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end it's not yet the end now if if these are not the end if what we just read if the deceptions the wars and rumors of wars are not the end what are they he continues on and he says in verse 8 for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be earthquakes in various places and there and there will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of what? Birth pangs. What's birth pangs? Labor pains. So just like labor pains don't begin at conception or throughout the pregnancy. When do they begin? Just at birth. Just before the birth. And then the labor pains continues to increase in frequency and it intensifies until the baby is born. And Jesus here, the, the author of human history, is saying to us that just like labor pains, these catastrophic events will take place before his second coming. And they will increase in their intensity and their rapid succession. And there will be a cosmic blow after another blow after another blow. And by the way, you know this analogy of labor pain? Um, this um, cataclysmic events that will take place that would look like labor pain at the end times? Uh, this is not anything new. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6 to 8, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And in verse 8, it says, They will be terrified, pains, and anguish will take hold of them. They will travail like a, a woman in labor. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, it says, While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. So Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, was in no way prophesying the events that will precede the destruction of the temple. No, these prophecies will precede the destruction of the world. From deception to international wars and global earthquakes. And they're going to build up and keep on swelling up until the explosion of all events will take place. The curtain on the stage of human history will suddenly drop. And then King Jesus will step into the scene. And he will ferociously punish the wicked who rejected this free offer of salvation. And yet, he will kind-heartedly usher his people into his millennial kingdom. And now as Jesus begins to unfold the end of human history, he gives us eight specific signs that will, will signal his return to establish his earthly kingdom. First, deception. 
then wars, then earthquakes and famines and persecution, abomination of desolation, and then more false Christ will come into the scene, and then um, cosmological chaos, you know, where the sun will be dark and moon will not give its light, stars will be falling, and it says at the end there, the powers that are in heavens will be shaken. And Jesus lays it down for us chronologically and sequentially. Today, we'll focus on that first sign of the worldwide deception. Worldwide deception. And it's like fish drawn to a bait. Man will be drawn to satanic strongholds, ready to be fried in his eternal oven, basically. Just a little footnote. Although the rapture of the church is not mentioned here in this Olivet Discourse, we spoke about this last week. Uh, we have to go to the epistles for that. Why? Because the rapture is a mystery. It's a mystery. And it will only be revealed during the church age. And we know the church age, the church age when, when did it begin? It began at the Pentecost. All right? So although the rapture of the church is not found here, but it's, um, but it's certainly going to happen. And I'll praise God and we ought to thank the Lord um, our God, that um, the church will be raptured just like God raptured Enoch before the great flood. And just like God delivered Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they didn't go through it, so Jesus will rapture his church before this great tribulation. And then after the church is raptured, all hell will break loose. And then this great deception will take place. I'll have a look at three uh, points in my outline. Number one, the warning of Christ. The warning of Christ. Number two, false Christs. And number three, the Antichrist. So number one, we'll look at Jesus calling us, all of us, to take heed. There is great deception coming our way. And then take heed why. What is that great reception uh, coming from? It's coming from false Christs, many of them. And then there is one singular antichrist. First, the warning of Christ. So we'll go back to our passage here. Jesus is sitting in the, olive, in the Mount of Olives. And it says in verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, So Jesus opens this discourse, this Oliver discourse, and we'll find here the very first thing that will come out of his mouth is an imperative and direct command. And he says here, see to it that no one misleads you. See to it. Watch out. Take heed. Keep your antenna up. Be on high alert. Don't let anyone mislead you. Now this command, this warning, runs throughout the artery of this Oliver Discourse. In verse 9, it says, be on your guard. Verse 23, take heed. Verse 33, take heed. Keep on the alert. And then even Jesus, when he wants to finish the Oliver Discourse and the entire prophecies in verse 37, says, What I say to you, I say to all. That includes Saving Grace Bible Church. Be on the alert. I say to all my disciples, don't be sleepy soldiers don't be lazy stay at your post keep your eyes wide open and your index finger on the trigger your enemy is very near so what is jesus purpose of informing us of this end times he, he doesn't leave any room for us to guess right End times is not meant to be like how people make it out to be, um, just a, a very thrilling bedtime story. 
You know, oh, we'll talk about the end time, the Antichrist, and this and that. Oh, great, where's the popcorn? Bring it. It's not meant to be like that. Nor is it meant to be just to flex our theological muscles before others. See to it that no one misleads you. The first sign is to watch out from false signs. Don't be misled. This, this danger of being misled, being deceived, is a hard-pressed reality, is it not? I mean, deception has always been sat Satan's default weapon from um, the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden, sorry, till the time of Jesus, and even today. The devil, he just loves pulling the rug over people's eyes. And, and there is no culture, no time in history where humanity is spared from the bombardment of this demonic seduction and deception from false religions, false teaching, false gospels, you name it, he's got it. And Jesus is calling us to watch out. Take heed. How important to take heed to Jesus' warning, especially as we know that the end time is getting ever closer day by day. We are 2,000 years nearer to the end times than at that time when Jesus said, watch out. That's the first point, the warning of Christ. Second, the false Christs. Now, to take heed of false teaching throughout history, we understand. But what's the difference? I mean, if deception has always been there since the beginning of time, what's new about the end times? Will we read verse 6 for that? Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Now, please pay attention to the first and the last word of this sentence. What is it? It's the same word. Many. Many false Christs. And there will be many casualties. Many will be present during that period like never before. If we read carefully what Jesus is saying here, he is not just saying that there will be false teachers. Of course there will be false teachers, absolutely, no doubt. But he is saying here, many will come in my name. Meaning, they will come and they will claim that they have the power and the signs and wonders of Jesus Christ himself. But not only that. I mean, up to that point, we say, well, we've got many false prophets that claim to have the power of Jesus. But pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying. And he's saying here, saying, I am what? I am he. He who? Notice, if you have Nazbi like I do, it's italic, meaning it's not in the original text. And how do we know he who? You go to Matthew 24, and in that parallel account in Matthew 24, verse 5, Matthew adds, the Christ. I am the Christ and will mislead many. So many will show up and they will forge Jesus' identity and many will be walking around with this fake ID and one will say, I'm the Christ and the other will say, no, 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 I'm the Christ. And then a third comes and he says, no, 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 look at me, I'm the Christ. You see? So again, if we review the church history, for sure, we would discover there are countless of false teachers, and they're like snakes. Um, they spray venom, spitting false doctrine. But how often do we hear of men claiming to be the Christ? Not very often, not many. And what Jesus is saying here, that this will be an unparalleled, unprecedented era of false Christs, false prophets. So much so that in Mark 13, in the same passage that we have, starting from verse 20, Jesus says, 
unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is they, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So the focus is not just purely false teachers. The focus is that there will be many false Christs, literally false Christs. And these false Christs will be popping up everywhere and they will be performing somersault acrobatic signs and wonders and they will do magic and demon-empowered miracles so much that they will make it look like it's believable. None of these hogwash, you know, Benny Hinn miracles. For lack of a better word, this will be genuine false signs. And the deception will exceed all other deceptions. And their lies and their false teaching will be heightened, it will be intensified, and they will be able to capture the mind and the heart of the world. And they will deceive, Jesus says, if possible, even the elect. It's not to say that the elect will be deceived and will uh, uh, throw away their devotion to Christ, but the deception in those days will be so extremely powerful. So no doubt, since the deception will be so powerful that these false Christs, they're not going to come to you with, you know, two horns or bad manner and say, hey, I'm a bad prophet, believe in me. Deception does not normally work this way. Are they going to be polite? Are they going to be saying, sir, a high man? And, and they're going to look like decent people. Combed hair, nicely dressed, white teeth, and they will speak softly just to attract a gullible. And they're going to provide financial solutions to the economic crisis, peaceful solution to the world political crisis and medicine for health crisis. And they will be proclaiming all kinds of false gospels. And there you will hear prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus, come to me and I will heal you. I will make you rich. Or the works-based gospel. Work hard and feel holy so to be accepted by God. Are they going to be promoting one world religion? But they will never preach the sacrificial blood of a crucified and resurrected Savior. They will never, ever say to believe in Jesus Christ. And to come to him because he offers free salvation to anyone that would come to him and place his trust in him. Is it any wonder that Jesus says in verse 5, see to it that no one misleads you. Or verse 6, false Christs will mislead many. So these are the false Christs. So number one, the warning of Christ, watch out from that deception. It's going to get worse and worse. Number two, false Christs, watch out from them. Now, these many false Christs, they will culminate to the coming of one single antichrist. And uh, we'll be spending um, the longest part of the message on this Antichrist, the great deception of this Antichrist. And this man, he will be the upper crust, the cream on top of all false Christs. 
He will be the ultimate expression of deception and false teaching, and his work will be energized by the power of demons. In fact, his wickedness, if you study who he is in the scripture, his wickedness will be worse than 10,000 times of that of Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Bin Laden. And when the scripture speaks of the coming of Christ, the scripture does not refer to an organization as though he just represents uh, um, a group of individuals that are wicked people. Nor is it just an idea or a, a concept of evil. It's not that. It's not allegorical or a symbol. He will be a literal, wicked human being who will be in communion with the demons and the devils of hell. So this Antichrist will be a singular person. In fact, in the scripture, he's been given so many titles. Daniel calls him the prince who is to come. Or another passage, Daniel calls him the small horn. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. G John calls him the beast. This Antichrist will be so deceiving that it says in Daniel 8.25, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. While they are at ease, he will destroy them. He's called in the scripture that he will come with all deception of wickedness. He's going to be a snake, a great politician, a smooth talker. And he will be so convincing that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it tells us that Israel as a nation will be so caught up by him and deceived and they will make a covenant with him for seven years. And, he, and they will assume that he is their deliverer, their Messiah, until halfway through this covenant. So three and a half years later, he will turn on them and he will massacre thousands of them. And if that is not enough to convince us all how cunning he will be, Revelation tells us even more. So in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, it says this about him, that it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So he will be slaughtering all believers at that time. And then pay attention to what it says. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world. If you're an unbeliever and you think that you can go through this great tribulation time and your life will be spared and somehow you won't be deceived, think again. The whole world will worship him. How cunning, how deceitful will the Antichrist be that while he goes around slaughtering all those who believe uh, at that time on earth, yet all unbelievers, all people, from all races, all nations, they will be so delusioned that they will fall down in adoration of him and pay him homage. That's the whole world will be deceived. And you can say, well, how? how? Just how can the world be so gullible that they will be so delusioned like this? I mean, how can he pull the rug over all the heads of all people? That doesn't make sense. Well, think about it, brothers. If now 
without the influence of this Antichrist at all. And even in the most developed nations of the world, they are so confused about their gender, they don't even know the difference between a male and a female. I mean, the most basic studies of biology that even animals know about, the most intellectual people the world offers are confused. And that is with the absence of the Antichrist and the satanic power and those believable signs and wonders. Can you, can you imagine how gullible, how naive the earth will be when the Antichrist comes into the scene? Now you might, you might say, well, surely this chaos that we are experiencing at the moment, it's just, it's a phase that will pass away. Surely there is a better future ahead of us. And you know what? Some Christians do teach that. Some Christians teach that the world will just come, will become better and better until it reaches a stage of just maybe, just less than perfect. And then finally Jesus will come and he will establish his kingdom. The scripture teaches contrary in the exact opposite of that. In 2 Timothy 3.1, it says this, Paul says, but realize this, that in the last days, that is in the last days of the church age, before the Lord's day, in the last days, difficult times will come. Meaning in the last days, there will be great stress, great troubles that will be very hard to bear. Now, why is that? He continues on in 2 Timothy 3.2. He says, as the end approaches, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. On and on and on and on. Meaning the world won't get any better. It's just going to be the exact opposite. It's going to go from bad to worse. And as it gets from bad to worse, it will set the stage for the coming of the Antichrist. We know that because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, let me read to you what it says from 9 to 12, right? Just pay attention. It's okay. Or if you want to flick over, you can flick over as well. It says this about the Antichrist. The one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and wonders and with all deception of wickedness. So he's going to come not with his power, but he is going to come with the power of Satan. He will become a powerful beast. Now notice whom he will deceive. Whom will be vulnerable to his deception. For those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Whom? The unbelievers. Continuing on, verse 11. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. So if an unbeliever hears this message and he knows that there is an antichrist and then he focuses and he says, well, I'm not going to be deceived, I'm not going to be deceived, I'm not going to be deceived. And he kind of like, by his willpower, he's going to try and, and, and not believe what the antichrist will do. God says here, God is the one that will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And God will overpower you. Why? It says this, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took what? Pleasure in wickedness. So God calls upon you to come to saving faith. He tells you that I offered my son to you so that you would believe in him and you have free salvation. But you say, no, I don't want to believe in him. I want to hold on to my self-righteousness. And God says, very well, I've done that so many times and you rejected me every single time. Now you love this sin. I'm going to rub your nose on that sin and evil. I'll give you what you wished for. And so in the last days, 
because the heart of man will grow cold towards God, there will be difficult times. Difficult times will come. And the world will fall apart. And it will be in disarray. And there will be economic crisis and social and political collapse. And everything will be falling to pieces. And everyone will be running around in a havoc. And they're all desperate for a solution. The whole world will come crashing down. And everyone will be looking for a Messiah, a deliverer. Not to deliver them from their sin and the wrath to come. No, they don't look for a Savior to help them to be made right with God. No, they want a deliverer for what? To solve what? The world economic and political collapse. Why? Because it's hindering them to dive deeper into their self-indulgence. Into the love for wickedness. And as soon as the world will cry out for this kind of worldly deliverer, God will grant them their wish. And the Antichrist will come into the scene. He will come and he will step into the world stage and he will say, Behold, I am he. I'm your savior. And the whole world, because of the love for their sin, will be deceived. And they will be as dumb as a post. Antichrist will be so powerful in his influence, he will just tell them, jump, and they will say, how high. He will wrap the whole world around his little finger. The Bible tells us that he will promise prosperity and peace, but he will only deliver destruction. Well, one more thing that I do mention about the Antichrist before we come to the end of the message. I do want to contrast at least a couple of things between the Antichrist and the real Christ. God forbid that we would leave this place with only just being informed of the end times and our hearts would not be gripped by our Savior. So I must preach Christ and I want to bring Christ and what he is like in contrast with this Antichrist. And for that, can I please ask you to turn to Second Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And just while you're turning, um, just give you a quick background. The Thessalonians at that time, that was suffering very severe persecution, tremendous hardship. And some people, it seems like in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses, the first couple of verses, there are, a couple, there are people that came in and they said to them, if you're suffering so much persecution, surely you missed the rapture and surely the day of the Lord is now at hand and you're actually going through this cataclysmic tribulation and suffering. And so those believers at that time, um, they began to be troubled in their hearts. And in a lot of that, Paul here is responding to them by giving them his version of the first sign of the end of the age. Just the first sign of the end. And, and his version of, of, of the end, the first version, sorry, his version of the first sign, it's not much different from what Jesus told his disciples. It's just deeper in who and what the Antichrist will do. So we read from verse 3. Paul here tells the Thessalonians just exactly what Jesus told his disciples. Let no one in any way deceive you. Don't be misled. For it will not come. What is it that will not come? It's the day of the Lord, the great tribulation period. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness, here is the Antichrist. The man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So the first sign that will mark the beginning of this period is the revelation of the Antichrist and the deception that will sweep over the whole world. I believe the Antichrist, if you read the scripture carefully, you would find that he's possessed by Satan himself. Satan will come into this man and will indwell this man. Why? Because Satan, since his fall, always craved to be what? To be God. To be worshipped by all humans. 
and he wants to be so much like Christ in every way, except that he's fraud. He's fake. So please note, I want to contrast the Antichrist with Christ in two ways. In Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity. Because it says here in that verse that we just read, the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the Antichrist will be a man just like Jesus is a man. But there's a huge difference, huge contrast. Why? Because when Jesus came as a man, consider his godliness. He hungered, yet he fed multitudes. He was exhausted while he's calling people to eternal rest. He felt pain, yet he comforted thousands of people. Jesus came as a man to perfectly represent us before the Father. We know that. We know that God cannot be offered as a burnt offering on the altar for our sins, right? Only a true man can bear man's sin and be their substitute before God. So Jesus was truly man. And because he was truly man, Satan wants to be just like Jesus. So he indwells this Antichrist, and this Antichrist is now a counterfeit version of Jesus Christ. But can you see the infinite, glorious difference, this profound difference between Jesus' humanity and that of Antichrist? Look at it again. The man of what? Lawlessness. What does lawlessness mean? Sin. Man of sin. Jesus never sinned. He was never lawless. He fully obeyed the law of God. But to say about the Antichrist that he's a man of lawlessness, it means that he will disobey all the law of God. That Jesus, in one hand, imputed to us into our account the all righteousness of God. But to be a man of lawlessness is to seduce his people to be lawless. To be unrighteous. So although Satan longs to be like Jesus, there's infinite difference between the humanity of Christ and that of the Antichrist. Second and last one is, not only does Satan want to be like Jesus in his humanity, but like we just said earlier, what is his ultimate purpose? To occupy Jesus' divine office. Satan has always longed to be worshipped as God. So we read in that next verse about the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. What this basically tells us is that this Antichrist wants to be, um, wants to declare himself as God. Jesus is truly God. We know that again. All right. It has to be this way in order to save us from sin. He has to have this ability, this power to save us from sin. If Jesus was only man, and that's all that Jesus was, he died as a man, heaven would still be empty. His blood would have been cheap. And our sins would have not been forgiven. If Jesus died as only man, then we would have to pity him. His intentions are good. But he has no power in and of himself to save anybody. But Jesus is God. That's why heaven is full of shouts of praise of the redeemed. His blood is precious. And our sins are forgiven, so we don't pity Christ. We love Christ, and we fear Christ. He is able to freely save anybody that will come to him. So Jesus is truly God. And so the scripture even tells us in 1 Timothy 6.15 about Jesus Christ, the second person. That he's only sovereign. 
meaning Jesus has the first and the final word in everything. That he is king of kings, that he is lord of lords. Meaning Jesus is the undisputed king, unchallenged, unrivaled Lord. Even the devil is Jesus' devil. In verse 16, it says, Who alone possesses immortality. Meaning death lies dead at Jesus' feet. It cannot touch him. That's Jesus. That's God. And yet the Antichrist has the audacity to declare himself as God. How absurd. How moronic. I mean, this Antichrist is going to go with the fairies when he comes. To actually think that he would take that seat of Christ where death lays at his feet and to say, I'm God, and then oppose Christ, displaying himself as God. He's going to be a fool. Because to try to overthrow Jesus from his throne is like a little toddler playing with matches. And he will get himself burnt, literally speaking. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, it says that the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord, that's Jesus, will slay with what? The breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming so jesus would come just as easy as breathing just breathes out puff, slays that most powerful and most wicked man ever lived in fact, in Revelation 19, verse 20, it tells us that Jesus himself will throw this Antichrist into the lake of fire, which burns with, brim, burns with brimstone. Brothers, sisters, Jesus again will win at the end. And because we are in Christ, we will win with him. So how do we apply what we've learned today? What Jesus said to his disciples, I say to all of us this morning, see to it that no one misleads you. And if you don't want false teachers to mislead you, especially in this so seductive culture that we live in, where all kinds of false teachings are at our fingertips, if we don't want false Christs to mislead us or false prophets and false teachers, don't we think that we've got to make sure that the true Christ does indeed lead us? So how do we do that? How do we ensure that the true Christ is actually leading us? while we all hold each other's hands. Let us walk so close under the shadow of the true Christ that our heads would never leave his chest, our ears always hearing his word, our eyes always beholding his glory, and our hearts keep on loving him. Because to not be misled by the false Christs is to be diligently following the true Christ. Right? So, brothers, sisters, as, as we had a glimpse, just a foreshadow of the end times, I want to urge you, I want to call upon you, don't give up. Hold on. And with whatever trials you have in your life, persevere. It's only a matter of time and our Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's only a short time before we're raptured and no more pain or hurt. Continue, brothers, 
continue to be faithful, worshipping and obeying the Lord. And we will have the best inheritance that we would ever think of. And we will have precious crowns. How do we do that? How do we ensure that all that I just said, that we can apply them? Let me give you a couple of examples. How about when we're in trials? Rather than to give in to the flesh. How about we cry out to God and in the middle of that trial we say, God, help me. How do I turn this trial into an opportunity to draw nearer to Christ? Lord God, what area in my life am I gripping into that I need to let go so that I would cleave and grip Christ instead? Or perhaps another way of following closely to Christ in that when a brother of yours confronts you of sin, rather than very quickly bringing out this inner lawyer that begins to justify your behaviors and your actions, and then you begin to pull punches, rather than that, how about you see this sin that your brother confronts you with as an evidence why you are in need of Jesus. You are in need of a Savior. You are in need to remember his blood that cleansed you from sin. And that you are in need of Christ to empower you to overcome this sin. Do we think that when we follow that, these steps, that will draw us really close to the Savior? And fun and precious. And for those among us who have not yet come to saving faith, You don't know when you're going to enter into this tribulation. You don't know when God will switch on this time, this period, or flick off the light and you'll be in complete darkness. And the moment God flicks off the light and you enter into this most terrifying, most horrifying time, if you can't find in yourself to repent now and put your place, faith in Jesus Christ, what makes you think at that time you will? How is it that when you have way less deception, way less delusion, and yet you are not wanting to put your trust in Jesus Christ, what makes you think when great deception comes in, into the scene when the antichrist reveals himself that somehow you'll have a clearer mind to think and then put your trust in jesus christ what fools would think that way i urge you come to christ he's now making himself available to be your savior but when he comes back he will come back with retribution. He will come back for judgment. I urge you, come to a saving faith. I was talking to a couple of people that were in my house yesterday um, who, are not, who, who are not Christians, and I was thinking about this. Jesus Christ offers free salvation to anyone that will come to him. Now imagine this. Imagine if God would have said to you, to have eternal life, to have complete forgiveness of sins, and to have a new heart, a new life within you, you need to walk from here for another 10,000 kilometers. Would you, not be, would you not think that it's worth it? Of course it will be worth it. It's eternal life we're talking about. How much all the more when he offers free salvation, free to anyone that will come to him. Why would you deny yourself a wonderful opportunity to know Christ? I plead with you. 2,000 years ago, there is a Savior that was hung on the cross. And he shed his blood. And that blood is precious because that Savior happens to be the Son of God. 
and is able to save anyone that will come to him. I urge you, come to him and you will find salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord God, we praise you, Lord. We praise you, Father. You are the author of human history from beginning till the end. History is your story, Lord. And we're just living it. And we pray, Lord, that as we have seen, as we have gone into the future and seen a disaster, the cataclysmic chaos that will take place, help us, Lord, to draw nearer to Christ and realize that our life here on earth is short. Give us, Lord, to desire eternity, that every moment we live here on earth, that it would count for eternity. Oh, we plead, Lord, with you. Give us wisdom. Let us be wise in these last days. Oh, we plead with you, Lord. Cause our hearts to swell up with love for your Son, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, for those among us who do not know you, Lord. If it's not you that would reach out and penetrate and make this first move and reach out into their hearts and place in their hearts the seed of the new birth. No one is good enough. No one is holy enough to cry out to you. How can we exercise faith if you do not give us, Lord? I will pray, Lord, for those miserable, wicked people whose sins have not been forgiven, that you would have mercy upon them, that you would lead them to Christ. Open their eyes. Let them behold the Son of God who died and rose again, who has all power to release them from this eternal damnation, who is so good, so loving, so great of a Savior, that he is willing to save to the uttermost all those that will come to him. Oh, we pray, Lord, let them flee to Christ, that they would find salvation for their souls. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.